Hello, another week, uh, another podcast. Now, I'm not sure what's happening out there in the world just now, but in May, our podcast downloads increased dramatically. Now, I've certainly had some wonderful guests in the last month, James Birch and Mark Allen, talking about Brit's key algorithmic underwriter, Frank Perkins from Inari, sharing his advice on building your technology, and Sean Ringstead, Chief Digital Officer of Chubb, on his love of IoT. We also had Andy and Melanie from Kind, the recently formed cyber company, and finally, Nigel Walsh from Deloitte sharing his views on practically everything. Now, I've had great guests every month, so I think it's partly because the weather's getting better and restrictions being lifted, so more of you are out exercising and listening to podcasts again, or like one of our past guests, even listening whilst you're mowing the lawn. Well, we're going to test things this week, see how we do for June. It's Matthew Grant here, one of the partners at Instec London. And Rob and I were interviewed by Catherine Shee of Insurance Insider last week for their Insider Tech events. Well, we're big fans of the Insider. Great insights there on what's going on in the world and they're very fast to get the news. And we thought Catherine asked some great questions. We haven't had a partner's chat for a while, so we're bringing it to you for this week's episode. Now, the sound quality is not perfect, but Peter's worked his usual magic on it and polished it up. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm finding some potentially good podcasts are actually being ruined by poor sound quality and shoddy editing. Now, we may be bootstrapping here in Stack London, but we're spending money where it counts. We do like a bit of nature, though, so we've left in the birdsong, see if you can figure out what it is. Hang in to the end to find out who we've got coming up in the next few weeks and starting this week, the Instec London competition. I'm delighted to be joined by Matthew Grant and Robin Merton, both partners at Instec London, uh, which is a community that brings together innovators, entrepreneurs, investors and professionals from across the market to drive innovation and change in our industry. How are you doing? Thanks for having us. We're, it's quite nice to be on the other side of the, uh, of the equation, having you ask us questions rather than the other way around. I think you've both got great insight to give us. But let's start with a very kind of general question uh, to set the scene. So we should probably start by defining what we mean by InsureTech uh, in this context. Are we only talking about startups, Matthew? Thanks, Catherine. We could spend the whole time just debating that. But the, the reality <laughs> is InsureTech... It started off probably 10 years ago, meaning early stage companies you know, generally thought of as disruptors split between those that were MGAs, technology enabled, plus you know, pure technology plays and data. But over time, I think people have really understood it to, to still mean companies that are doing uh, innovative things with technology, but not limited to just the startups. And the reality of those startups are now as scale-ups. And I think Andy Yeoman from Consirus, the founder and CEO, summed it up very well when he said that these days yeah, every company is an insure tech it's just that some of them have still got bad tech. You've observed before that the pandemic uh, has accelerated existing trends in insure tech but what do you mean by that? We've been using this expression the future is going to arrive uh, a lot quicker than we anticipated. It seems pretty obvious to me that those who were digital or dig advanced digitally have survived better than those who weren't. Those sitting on AS400 technology and, and, and heavily dependent on call centers and, you know, so on have, have suffered the most. So uh, if ever there was any sort of validation needed of the benefits of digitization, I think we've just had it. And, and even those people who, who have fought such a successful rearguard action over the years uh, have found a way. There are obviously winners in all of this and, and losers in all of this. And, and anything that has enabled us to work uh, remotely is a winner. Uh, I look at the winners and think at um, 
you know, anything to do with IoT and the ability to, to monitor uh, buildings. Uh, there are all those claims technologies which have enabled people to notify and assess claims remotely. That, that's a, um, a big winner in all of this. The ability to do medical examinations, to do remote diagnosis, to do, you know, to get a life insurance policy without going to see a doctor. Uh, you know, th 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 those, those technologies are the ones getting the most investment right now, particularly in, in, in the US. And then, of course, we've got our own PPL. Anything that enables you to, to transact insurance re remotely is also a big winner. I think if you're an investor at this point, it's, it's sort of clear, it's a lot more clear where to make your bets. Is it more difficult for people to secure investment these days, particularly in the early stage? Yeah, there's plenty of announcements coming out every, you know, every week for people who've raised new money. Qu quite a lot of those have started the process, um, you know, before mm. the pandemic. And, and uh, there's nothing about the pandemic that put investors off. If you're an early stage company, you didn't have three, six months cash to burn, then I think life's just got really, really tough. If your money comes from mm. seed or angel sources, angel investors are not. Um, everybody, I mean, many angel investors have lost a, a fortune on their, you know, portfolio of investments anyway. They don't, they, they, the, the bets they want to make now are a lot safer than, than investing in insurtech. Uh, the, the, the tax benefits of, of investing in declining. So, so angel and seed money is really hard to get. For anyone Series A and, and above, it just, it's, it's fine. I mean, they've, they've, those um, PE and VCs have got a lot of money. I have to mm -hmm. put it somewhere. It's not like it's earning anything, uh, you know, sitting in a bank account. Uh, and as I just said, it, it's, you know, some technologies, it's, it's easier for them to make their bets now, I think. I, I think if you're beyond a certain stage, your life just got easier, probably, as long as you've got a good proposition. If you're early stage, I fear it's tough. Okay. Well, let's look at the, the opportunities that could arise from this. Is this a once-in-a-decade opportunity, uh, Matthew? Uh, absolutely, and I think anybody out there who is in either, either got their early stage company or is going out who, who doesn't think it's a, a once a decade opportunity should probably furlough themselves and, and just uh, ride the thing out and then go off and get a conventional job. No, I mean this is this is very significant. Robin's talked about some of the opportunities out there, uh, but you know, the, and the reality is that innovation doesn't happen in a vacuum. And, and what we've seen is lots of good ideas, and PPL is a good example of you know, trying to trying to get people to adopt that in noise. These things have happened, but it's not until you have to do it that things actually get accelerated. And we've seen that over the decades in the insurance industry. You're going back to 1992 with Hurricane Andrew, who triggered the introduction both of some pretty significant reinsurance companies in Bermuda, and from a technology point of view, catastrophe modeling. Saw it after uh, September 11th with, with terrorism insurance and some of the analytics that went around that. But the problem is that you know, people people don't believe until they feel. So pandemic's a good example where there were models out there for modeling pandemics. Yeah, you know, I myself was, was involved in those. You intuitively knew this was a risk, but if actually been through it, it doesn't really get attention for business, doesn't get attention for regulation. But of course, as we come out of this now, pandemic specifically, people are going to be very uh, concerned about thinking hard about how they manage it going forward. But of course, there are other major risks out there or losses that haven't yet Happen. And I think the risk is that you know, the next big one probably won't be another pandemic. It'll be something like a catastrophic cyber loss or something we can't even contemplate. And so I th think the opportunity is partly one, you know, how do people 
managed through a pandemic, both from a risk mitigation side and an insurance perspective. We can talk a lot about that, but also just more generally, you know, not get too confused by this concept of the 100 year event. You know, there are lots of 100 year events that can happen from flooding in Katrina to you talk about terrorism to the pandemic itself. You get enough of those things. It means every 10 years you are going to have or we are going to have a, a big loss. So, yes, yeah, it is a big opportunity. And there is there is money out there, as Robin said, you know, there's money out there from investors, investment funds who actually need to deploy their funds. And there's going to be an increasingly receptive market. And I think the other thing we're going to see from an insurance point of view is the ability to find new ways to cover risks that people before have felt yeah, they didn't want to pay for or you know, from a regulatory point of view are going to have to pay for. So, yeah, yeah de definitely uh, an opportunity for, for everyone, frankly. And is that opportunity kind of a product opportunity? Is it an investment opportunity? You know, can you give us, maybe it's both, um, could you just give us some, some ideas and do you think the incumbent market can can actually uh, capitalise on this? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So from a, uh, from a product point of view, um, the whole sort of business interruption around pandemic is an example. You know, business interruption traditionally has been really hard to to get the analytics around a model. So there's obviously been insurance for it, contingent BI, when you sort of get impacted by someone else's loss, it's even harder to sort out. But you know, people are recognizing that businesses need to be able to trade through this. So you need to look at some creative ways of how to provide that cover. And so we're starting to see uh, an interest in indexes and parametric insurance. Now, parametric insurance has been around actually for quite a long time in the reinsurance markets with the ILS markets, and actually it's very well developed. There's $100 billion of coverage out there, of which about 15% is um is uses, uses parametric but the idea of using a external uh, an independently verified trigger to pay a loss becomes quite appealing so for example for business interruption you might look at things such as you know loss of revenue for a business but you could also look at things like flight cancellations um you could look at uh incidences of reported pandemics all sorts of different creative ways now provided that there can be a, a way of matching the the actual indemnity loss, either you know, financial loss to what the trigger has uh, in a way that is, you know, leaves the, the, the big buyers comfortable, they are going to get paid. Then I think we're going to see some very um, efficient ways of covering a loss. And what's also, you know, from the insurance industry's point of view, and Robin's going to talk a bit about this in a minute, you know, I think what's very encouraging, and actually we've been seeing this as well, and it goes back to your question about InsurTech, is you get very large organizations that traditionally haven't necessarily thought they could do things in insurance or haven't really seen the value of it starting to recognize that it's um it's a it's a great place to apply their technology they've got the clients they've got the data and so they're starting to look at insurance as a way not necessarily coming in and trying to you know, steal the business from the incumbent insurance but actually to offer the analytics they've got and the clients they've got and that's, and just think more broadly about what it means to um to manage risks. So lots of different strands coming together, I think we're going to see in the, coming ahead in the next uh, 12, 24 months. So where does this leave innovation within corporates? I mean, obviously, these corporate companies have got a million and one things now which are front of mind in terms of navigating their way through the pandemic, you know, the immediate operational challenge, the long-term implications for their business. Sometimes innovation can get sidelined a little bit. But, you know, Robin, I don't know if you've got any ideas of whether this innovation can still continue and at the rate it was you know, before the pandemic? I've been talking to talk for 20 years now, so, so I've seen all sort of sp um, stages of the cycle. And the strange thing about the insurance industry is that when it's doing really well, it feels very confident. And you go in and you say, look, I think you need to 
do this and that to transform your business and make it a little bit more digital. And they go, well, you know, we made 700 million pounds in profit last year. So, you know, I don't, I, I don't think we need, <laughs> there's that much we need to fix. We're doing fine, thanks very much. And then, of course, the great uh, corollary of that is that you get moments like this where um, the need to uh, change your business manifests itself in, in a profound way. And, and as you rightly say, everyone is going to turn around now and go, well, that's great. I know what I need to do, but I haven't got any money. Uh, and, and by the way, you know, those who've raised money like Hiscox and Beasley in the last uh, 10 days or so, they're not going to use it for their in, in their innovation budget. They, they're using that to, to pay losses. So those people who had um, sidelines in innovation and had little teams who are looking at things and accelerating things, I, I, I can't see many of those surviving, particularly in, you know, in, the, in the London market. I'm not sure that corporate venture funds were particularly successful anyway so those people putting big amounts of money into startup boot camp and plug and play and so on i i, I think it'll be a lot more i mean startup boot camps now gone um uh, plug and play uh, uh still trying to get into into london i mean those are indications of the fact that there's there was a declining appetite for some of these things bef even before the pandemic um you know my my view of life is that there are plenty of people out there um who are who are who have bigger budgets uh, and are able to help and and I think that that you know a line of inquiry now is kind of what what we as an industry do about that. If you're John Neal now and you're you're sitting on Lloyd's Blueprint and you had um, you know dramatic plans at the end of last year and you were talking about all the things you were going to do in 2020 and you put aside 25 million pounds. Uh, you know, that, that's got to be all shelved and, and you're not going to spend, no one wants him to spend his money on expensive consultants to tell him what to do. They, they like him to fix um, the, the current issues that Lloyd's has. And, and, you know, that would be a very good example of how there was budget available in 2020. But I, I, I mean, I have no knowledge, but I, I doubt whether the blueprint's going to spend 25 million in 2020. Yeah. I mean, obviously Lloyd's has raised debt already, haven't they, that they can use for the future of Lloyd's strategy. Mm. But um, I know that they've really sort of honed their focus on, on what is the key priorities for this year. Could you see big tech, you know, like Google, Amazon, uh, Facebook, whatever, uh, take an increasing role in um, interest, sorry, in insurance post-pandemic, seeing as, you know, um, lots of capital on the outside already seeing sort of opportunity from raising rising rates and, and that sort of thing for after the pandemic. So I don't know if you had an idea about maybe we could see more interest from the big tech companies. We've both got views on that, I think. Hopefully they, they agree. Actually, maybe not. Maybe it'd be more interesting if you disagree. Uh, no, I mean, that's back to my point before about, you know, we are seeing more companies coming in. It clearly, Amazon and Google have been seen by some people as a big threat coming in. Google, you know, they did try to get into insurance a few years ago and realised that actually wasn't really the place for them. There's a lot of regulation in insurance companies and, you know, frankly, big techs survive quite nicely without being regulated. So I don't think they really want to start being people sniffing around what they're doing in the same way you have to as you're an insurance company. Um, but you know, there's a very different role where they're much more in partnership with the organizations. And yeah, we ourselves have been working quite closely with some of those organizations as, as an enabler. So I think you know, the, the trick here is for anybody in insurance, is, you know, like any kind of partnership, it's a bit like kind of praying mantis. You know, how do you make sure your partner doesn't actually end up eating you? And, and there are some initiatives going on. I'll just pass it back over to Robin to talk about some of those specifically where we do see some you know, very encouraging signs on both sides of what the future could, could look like. And it, it is going to shift the way 
you know, back to your earlier question about what does InsureTech mean and what does it mean to be an independent innovator to some extent. But I think ultimately it's going to be, uh, it's going to be good for all. I think the issues we have to face are huge structural issues. You know, our, our data is a mess. And, and if we want to start doing parametric or we want to do, start doing real-time pricing or we want to start doing um, you know, predictive analytics in a, in a fundamentally more informed way, a lot of this is about our data. And there are huge companies out there that know how to solve those problems and to solve them for, for, you know, for other industries. So, that, you know, the tech exists. Um, they often don't have the domain knowledge to be able to solve our problems. Uh, and it seems incredibly obvious to me that if you, you know, you, you, you have to give them the domain knowledge and you have to trust them to, to use the technology to, to sort the issues out. Now, the old model for that, and the professional services model, was you had to spend a fortune on £2,000-a-day consultants to, to be able to do that sort of thing. And I, I, I don't think the really big tech companies work like that. Um, uh, you know, they're looking around now seeing what the next big opportunities are, and they're looking at an industry that isn't very digitally advanced and thinking we have an enormous amount of tech and, and tools here that these people could or should be using. So many of them will put skin in the game to be able to get big uh, contracts. I've got no idea of what the commercials of the Google Brit digital syndicate tie-up were, but, but you know, I bet it was a, 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 a long um, period of analysis as to what the requirements were. Google putting their best foot forward in terms of, uh, you know, if you could search the world's, if you could search the whole internet in a few seconds and, and you and I can go onto a browser and ask a question and they can answer it, you can sure as hell take split data and do some smart stuff with it. And, and you'd even get to a point where you're asking, how many BI losses have we got for 2019? And you'll probably be able to get the question answered. <laughs> so if you could do that, you can help, you can solve a lot of industry problems. Um, but we've got to stop seeing them as a threat, I think, and, and kind of, you know, in, embrace them. And, and I think they can solve a lot of our problems for us and have the budget and appetite to do so. You mentioned, you know, our data is a mess, which is a, <laughs> a nice little statement there. There is actually a question on data, which has come through from the audience. So the question is, how do we reposition brokers as data acquirers and data providers in the modern era? Are there any examples that, that either of you can identify on sharing deeper data with underwriting as a competitive advantage? I'll jump in on that one. I'm intrigued whether that was a broker asking the question or whether it was somebody else. So this has been a long-standing challenge in the industry. And I mean, the reality is, on the one hand, the brokers do largely, particularly through Lloyd's entirely, control the flow of information between the insured and the insurer. Um, part of the, there's a lot of challenges about how data is moved around and why. I mean, partly the original, the original insurers don't actually often have very good data themselves in the first place. Um, and so there are some quite interesting technologies now where people are actually looking at how to enhance the data from third parties. The brokers themselves have got a quite a tricky position, particularly in the UK, uh, and I think it's going to happen in the US as well with regulation, which is if they're, they're under a lot of pressure, particularly in the retail markets, about how they're giving advice to their clients. So the challenge they have, the more data they have, then the more it's expected they're going to give their clients advice based around that data. And then secondly, if they start manipulating that data and passing it on, then they themselves have actually taken on some liability for the quality of the data. So the question is, is slightly more complicated than people sometimes think it is, which is, well, why can't the brokers just you know, make it easier to give access to data? I think ultimately the answer is the brokers have a role to play and always have had a role to play in terms of not just placing the insurance, but actually being part of the risk mitigation issue. Mm. So the brokers that are going to succeed, and you can see if you look at the big brokers website, they're talking about being consultants, analysts, data 
they, they've got an advisory role to play. Part of their advisory role is helping their clients figure out how to predict and prevent losses, um, as well as actually what the insurance is going to be. And then you know, they've got a role of helping those companies provide data into, into the end, end client. So, uh, you know, I definitely encourage all brokers certainly to understand what their client's data is and how to, how to improve the way that moves between different parties. But I think we all have to just recognize that it's not, it's not really as simple as we might think it needs to be. And that there need to be some creative situations such as getting access to third party data that actually almost leapfrog that process and give the end insurer an understanding and confidence of the data, but also help people when they're buying insurance. You, know, you shouldn't have to go and put in 55 details about your property, given the information that's out there that probably already knows more than you do about where a house is made of and when it was built and, and how high it is off the, off this, off yeah. the, um, the sea level and things like that. So one question to both of you, just to round off, um, and it is actually a question from the audience as well, but it ties in with what we were going to talk about. So uh, what words of advice would you give an innovation manager and insurer to persuade your leadership to push forward with tech investment in 2020 and beyond? In the shortest, most concise way I can say, it, it, because if you don't, you're dead. There have been lots of arguments um, based around the history of the industry and you know, it's relative success over the years as to why one wouldn't change. But um, whether you like it or not, your customers have changed. I think as a result of the last three months, actually your workforce has changed. And whether your workforce is going to be prepared to do what it used to do in order to get to work and then, you know, queue to see an underwriter uh, in a box. I, you know, I, I believe your workforce has changed. Uh, and and if, you do, if your customers have changed and your workforce has changed, and your product side has changed, then you have to change. You really have to change. Any final words, Matthew? My answer to that is, if you're an innovation manager in an insurance company, go and find you know, some of the smartest, most successful underwriters in your business, find out what their problems are, and, and then go out and help them solve it and come back with a real solution for the business that demonstrates the benefits of technology and data, make it, and make it real. The other thing I'd do in those positions was, um, through us if necessary, Go and talk to Google, go and talk to Amazon, go and talk to Verisk, you know, go and talk to these companies who, who, will, who, who can show you things that will blow your minds. And um, you know, if you do that, then uh, you know, the art of the possible presents itself and it ought to inspire at least a, a section of the workforce into doing something you know, profoundly different. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. And no, this is not Matthew after he's inhaled helium. But he thought that having been on the podcast himself, you might want to hear someone different at the end. Matthew's got some excellent guests coming up soon, including Barnaby Rugg Price, CEO of Broker Hyperion X, Gavin Namer from Granite and Florian Grayo of Astora VC. As usual, you can find what we're up to at Instec London. Born in the UK, but speaking to the world at www.instec.london. And if you like our podcasts, please do give us a rating and leave us a review. You can find Matthew at Matthew Grant on LinkedIn. And finally, this week's competition is to name the bird that is singing in the background when Robin is speaking in his podcast. Mm -hmm.